The Supreme Court just heard oral argument in Donald Trump's ballot eligibility case. Here are the main takeaways. Welcome back to Defending Democracy, our weekly podcast from Democracy Docket. Mark, the Supreme Court has wrapped up oral argument on the ballot eligibility of Donald Trump. We have a couple takeaways for people. Starting off, first and foremost, number one takeaway, Donald Trump will not be disqualified from the ballot. Yeah. So, you know, lawyers are trained to say you can never read too much into the oral arguments that judges ask questions or justices in this case ask questions. But I think it's fair to say, based on how the argument went, there are not five votes to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court decision. There may not be three votes to affirm that decision. And I know I know we'll get into that. It was pretty clear from the beginning that the court was just not going to buy what the voters who brought this case were selling. You know, the the um, there was a brief period when the petitioners who went first, which were Donald Trump's lawyers, laid out their arguments where you thought, okay, maybe some of the more liberal justices were on board with with um, with uh, keeping them off the ballot. But by the time we got to the the uh, the respondents, which were the voters' lawyer um, uh, uh, and his answering hypotheticals, it was clear that this was just this is not going to carry the day. Mark, you say it's pretty clear that there's basically no support to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Was there a specific moment or question that was asked that really solidified that for you? Yeah, look, I'm always careful not to criticize people who argue for the court as someone who has done it and got, uh, you know, and is sensitive to the the critiques you get Monday morning quarterbacking. But I have to say, I thought that the 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 mistake or the the key moment here was when the lawyer for the voters, the lawyer who was trying to keep Donald Trump off the ballot, was asked essentially a series of hypothetical questions by uh, by some of the justices. And he he fought the court way too hard. You know, like it's, uh, hypotheticals are always going to be slanted. They are asked, in this case, they were asked by some of the conservative justices, but you just need to answer the question. You might, you might get away with one time saying, those aren't the facts here. Uh, but, you know, as Justice Gorsuch pointed out to his former law clerk, I might add, um, that, you know, if that, that at some point you have to answer that question. And it felt like when the when the conservatives were were hammering home this point about whether or not uh, there needed to be congressional action and whether or not this would lead to a parade of horribles of all different states coming to conflicting rulings. At some point, you just need to answer that forthrightly, even if you're going to give them an answer that they don't like, rather than fighting the justice. And it felt like that was the moment where it was clear that he didn't have support among five justices. But immediately thereafter, it felt like the air came out of the tires, even among some of the liberal justices, who just felt like, you know what, there was not enough there to work with. And, and Paige, something I've talked about before involving Supreme Court arguments, one of the mistakes that advocates make is not doing what I sometimes call a bed check for your own supporters. And it felt like by that point in the argument, he had not done enough to firm up support among the three liberals, so that then when you move from Gorsuch to the liberals, you know, he just didn't have enough going on, I think, 
to keep um, to keep their support. So, I, you know, I don't know what the vote total will be, but I think it's more likely, frankly, that it will be, you know, eight, one or nine, zero, seven, two, then it will be five, four or even six, three. Mark, you mentioned how a lot of the questions went over congressional action, which leads us to our second takeaway that Trump's lawyer really didn't focus on questions about the insurrection. He focused on procedural issues and if Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing. Yeah, so look, I was originally very critical of the position that Trump's lawyers took in their briefs, which was exactly this, to sort of be like, insurrection? What insurrection? This isn't about an insurrection. This is about, you know, who an officer is and, and you know, and, and whether Congress has to pass um, laws to implement this provision of the Constitution. I thought it was very defensive. And honestly, when I heard his opening statement um, and where he led with that, I thought it sounded very defensive. I thought it was a mistake on their part, but it worked out for him. I mean, it worked out for him. He, you know, the, the lawyer seeking to disqualify Trump was never able to get the court to bite on insurrection. But I do think it speaks, you know, this podcast is mostly about law, but it's also a little bit about you know, politics and other cases and like what it will mean um, in other uh, in other democracy settings. I do think that Trump is going to pay a price um, for how much his his lawyers sort of fought away from and seem to be afraid of addressing the insurrection point. Um, you know, uh, he 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 didn't just not lead with it, but he seemed on rebuttal you know, which was, so that everyone knows, he goes, he went first because he was trying to overturn the decision below. Then uh, the lawyer trying to affirm the decision below, the, the lawyer for the voters. And then he went finally last as rebuttal. It was interesting, even in rebuttal, when it was pretty clear he had probably won this case, um, he still avoided talking about um, the insurrection points. Mark, do you have an opinion on if Section 3 is self-executing or if Congress does need to get involved and pass some sort of implementing legislation? Yeah, look, I think it I think it is. I, I again I'm not here to criticize the lawyer who who argued the case for the voters. He had a hard go of it. It's a difficult court. But I do think there was more to be done there. And I think that some of the liberal justices in the beginning were actually trying to lead him in the right in the right direction. Um you know, the, the fact is that the there was nothing in the text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that suggests that it is dependent on Congress writing legislation. And while it is true, and there was a lot of talk about the Griffin case, um, while it is true that Justice Story, um, uh, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, after the Civil War, wrote a opinion that suggested it was self-executing, he did that as a circuit judge, not as a Supreme Court justice. And as it was pointed out, again, early in the argument, some of the liberals were making this point that, that the chief justice later wrote another opinion that seemed to contradict that. Um, and I, I thought that, 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 that by the end of the argument, all that anyone who watched it knew was that there was this thing called the Griffin case that seemed to be rising up as binding precedent by the end of the argument. When if you go back now and listen to the beginning of the argument, I thought that Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, uh, had the better of the, the position on that, that 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 was in fact not um, binding on the Supreme Court. And I actually thought that the lawyer 
for Trump was a little on the defensive on that point early on. So I think the better the argument is that it does not require implementing legislation, but that's not where the where the center of the court um, wound up by the end of the several hours of oral argument. Mike, you mentioned how the Trump lawyers stayed away from the topic of insurrection. But our third takeaway is that when they were directly asked about it, when Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson asked about the insurrection and the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling on it, they had kind of a surprising response. Yeah, kudos to Justice uh, Jackson here for asking what I thought was, honestly, probably the biggest takeaway of the hearing for the long term. Not necessarily in this case, how this case will be decided, but let me tell you something. We're going to hear these words back. When, when, when he was pressed even a little bit on whether it was an insurrection, he did not have a good answer. He acknowledged that January 6th was shameful, that it was violent. Um, and boy, I'm not sure that Donald Trump's going to agree with his lawyer's characterization of January 6th as violent and shameful. Uh, but that's what his lawyer represented was his client's position to nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. So I think Donald Trump's other lawyers and Donald Trump himself are stuck with that answer now um, as we move forward in the political season and in these other court cases. So I think, again, it won't decide whether he's on the ballot or not, but I think that may wind up being one of the big admissions, which is what happens when a lawyer speaks on your behalf, uh, one of the big admissions that came out of this hearing. Do you think it matters that the Trump lawyer said it, January 6th wasn't an insurrection, it was a riot, even if he did then follow it up with, it was shameful, it was violent? So look, again, this was where I thought Donald Trump's lawyer was at his, was frankly at his worst. I, I, you know, of course he was going to say it was a riot, right? A riot doesn't hurt him. It doesn't hurt Donald Trump in his other criminal cases, doesn't hurt Donald Trump's perception in the public, doesn't hurt you know, the choir of convicted felons who who sing apparently at his rallies, I hear. I've never actually watched this hearing, his, uh, his, uh, his rallies. Um, but it was, but it was, it was, uh, it was surprising how quickly uh, Donald Trump's lawyer conceded that it was violent, right? I mean, how many times, Paige, have we heard Donald Trump and his supporters say it was, uh, you know, it was just like a love fest. It was a peaceful gathering. Right, peaceful gathering. There was nothing he, wrong. Yeah. And it was shameful. And that particularly the concession that it was violent is a critical part of the case against Donald Trump. Again, not in this case, but in others and something that Donald Trump has before fought. Um, but here it is. You have his lawyer acknowledging that to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mark, our fourth takeaway from the oral argument was that the justices actually spent a lot of time asking questions to assure themselves that they weren't somehow going to create a loophole for Trump later on if he was allowed to remain on the ballot. Can you explain exactly what happened there? Yeah. Again, I thought this was a very interesting set of moments, particularly early in the hearing. You know, this was when Donald Trump's lawyer was up. And the justices seemed to be asking a number of questions about whether Donald Trump was planning on exploiting a, a victory in this case in some unintended way. So, for example, there was a point in the hearing in which there was confusion over a case that is called U.S. Term Limits versus Thornton. Okay, this is a case that came out of Arkansas a number of years ago. Arkansas tried to 
essentially impose term limits on members of Congress. It's a little more complicated than that. I'll spare you the details. But um, the Supreme Court in this case called U.S. Term Limits, which was the name of the group that was sponsoring this effort, versus Thornton, the, the, the holding of the Supreme Court was that you can't place additional restrictions on members of Congress other than the ones that are in the Constitution. States can't enact other restrictions on uh, on members of Congress, including, for example, term limits. Um, well, you know, the, the lawyer for Trump appropriately, so no criticism here, appropriately referred to that as, quote, the term limits case, because that is what it is. It is the term limits case. Term limits was in the name of the case, and it involved term limits. But a number of the justices were concerned that when he was using the term term limits, that Donald Trump might, Trump, Donald Trump's lawyer might be trying to carve out an allowance for Donald Trump to actually run for office if he were to win again a third for a third term, which is prohibited by another amendment to the Constitution. Well, that kind of skepticism, that kind of concern that somehow Donald Trump's lawyer might be trying to shoehorn another exemption into uh, uh, or another ambiguity here is really extraordinary, given that, you know, Donald Trump is a former president of the United States. I mean, one would assume in a normal case, I mean, if Barack Obama's lawyer was before the U.S. Supreme Court, no one would, no justice on either side of the bench would think that Barack Obama would be somehow unconstitutionally trying to get a loophole in to be able to illegally run for a third term of office. But that goes to show you just how little trust there is for the good faith of Donald Trump in these proceedings. Over and over again, the justices seem to be not just looking for a limiting principle to decide this case, but might they be giving Donald Trump ammunition in a future case to violate other provisions of the U.S. Supreme Court? And Paige, you know, it reminds me a little bit of some of the oral argument we, we saw in the other big blockbuster case and ruling we had earlier this week in the immunity case. This was the D.C. Circuit case that ruled that Donald Trump was not immune from criminal prosecution, where, remember during that oral argument page, some of the justices were asking questions about whether or not, for example, a president could assassinate their opponent. I mean, Donald Trump has ushered in an era of of judges and justices having to assume the absolute worst from presidents. Um, that heretofore, you know, would have been beyond the pale. Mike, the term limit discussion was really interesting because we kind of saw it come to a head twice. Once when Chief Justice Roberts stepped in to say, hold on, we need to clarify, are we talking about term limits the case or term limits the prohibition on a president serving a third term in office? And everyone, you know, came to the clarification, everyone was talking about the case. And then Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, asked Trump's lawyer, are you arguing that a state couldn't disqualify a potential third-term presidential candidate just based off of the 22nd Amendment alone? And it is interesting that she had to ask the -hmm. Trump lawyer directly to say, you're not trying to say that the 22nd Amendment is not self-executing. Yeah. And I kind of thought it was interesting, by the way, the lawyer was like, oh, no, of course, I would never say that, which is remarkable because, of course, his client flirts with that all the time. So it was kind of another instance of where Trump's lawyer, you know, told the truth and, you know, said something that, you know, the Mr. I want to be a dictator for a day, um, you know, probably probably wish he hadn't said. 
Mark, our last takeaway from the oral argument was the impassioned pleas for democracy Trump's lawyer and conservative justices make. In his opening statement, Trump's lawyer said that his decision from the Supreme Court that affirms the Colorado Supreme Court's decision would, quote, take away the votes of potentially tens of millions of Americans, end quote. They made democracy and voter disenfranchisement front and center, and then we later saw Justices Kavanaugh and other conservative justices echo the same sentiment. Yeah, I have to say, I, I, I thought when I heard this from Trump's lawyer at the beginning that I was in a parallel universe. I mean, remember, Donald Trump went to the U.S. Supreme Court to throw out all of the votes in four states. Like literally the state of Texas, remember, files this lawsuit. Donald Trump is like all over it. He gets the speaker, the now speaker of the House to corral Republican members to sign on to the brief so that they can literally disenfranchise millions and millions and millions of people who had already voted. He litigated 60 plus cases to throw out the votes of millions of Americans. We saw judge after judge uh, conservative judges, judges appointed by Donald Trump, marvel at the absolute breadth of disenfranchisement that Donald Trump tried to uh, invoke the courts to do at the out, at the outset of the twenty uh, of the uh, at the outset of the post election period in uh, in twenty twenty. And so, for his lawyer to pick up that ball and run with it, that as a result of the the violent attack on our democracy. On January 6th, which was also, by the way, an effort to disenfranchise millions of American voters, the idea that he would start with that, I have to say, Paige, I quickly picked off the bookcase, a dictionary, and I looked up the word chutzpah, and there was Trump's lawyer. His picture was sitting there all along, sitting there in the dictionary, the dictionary definition of chutzpah, that Donald Trump would send a lawyer to the U.S. Supreme Court prepared to say that. Now, that's the lawyer. But... I then recovered and listened to the argument and it got, you know, the argument got a little flabby as we went along. It got very into like policy about, you know, what does it happen? What does it mean if, if this state does this and what will state do that? And then lo and behold, towards the end of the argument, Justice Kavanaugh, remember this page? Justice Kavanaugh. And he said, this is a quote. He says, what about the idea that we should think about democracy? Think about the right of the people to elect candidates of their choice of letting the people decide because your position has the effect of disenfranchising voters to a significant degree. This is what he says to the lawyer uh, trying to disqualify him from ballot. Who knew? Who knew that the conservative justices now are concerned about making sure that we have the right of people to elect their candidates of choice? Paige, when have, where have we heard that phrase? The Voting Rights Act? Making sure... Minority voters can elect their candidates of choice. The the uh, 14th Amendment and First Amendment cases, making sure that laws that Republican legislatures are passing in state after state after state to make it harder to vote, to take away drop boxes, to, to cut back on vote by mail, to do things that increase voting lines. What do those things do? Well, they make it, they do, they infringe on the right of people to elect candidates of their choice. So maybe, Paige, out of this entire multi-hour argument about whether Colorado's ballot access law can be applied or not, whether the 14th Amendment covers the 
office, uh, whether it covers the presidency, whether the president is an officer of the United States, whether things are self-executed. Maybe the takeaway from all of this, where we can all agree, Paige, is that the U.S. Supreme Court should adopt the democracy canon. And when interpreting the Constitution, we should do just as Justice Kavanaugh said, is we should be asking ourselves, does the interpretation of the Constitution disenfranchise voters or not? And we should interpret the Constitution so that it not. Maybe, Paige, we can, we can all hold hands with Donald Trump's lawyers. I know, not a pleasant thought. We all hold hands with his lawyers and say, let's not disenfranchise voters. Let's stand against the disenfranchisement of millions of voters the next time Donald Trump decides that he doesn't like an election result or one of his acolytes like Kerry Lake decides she, you know, wants to overturn the results of free and fair elections. But Paige, something tells me that just as this argument came and went, Donald Trump and his legal team's commitment to free and fair elections, to not disenfranchising voters, that will go as well. Because Paige, just as we were listening to this oral argument, what were we seeing? Republicans in Arizona trying to disenfranchise voters, new lawsuits. What are we seeing in Mississippi? Repub the Republican Party in Mississippi trying to disenfranchise voters. You know, I wish the fight for democracy was as simple as Donald Trump's lawyers when it is convenient for them invoking uh, the, the 14th Amendment and invoking the First Amendment to protect voting rights and due process. But Paige, I think that's just another cynical ploy on their part. But hopefully, you know, maybe it'll wind up. Maybe Justice uh, Kavanaugh, who's not part of the Trump campaign, Justice Kavanaugh, to be clear, um, you know, maybe he meant it and he'll put it in the opinion. And we will have a new emergence of a democracy canon in time for the 2024 election. Mark, so the case has been submitted to the U.S. Supreme Court. I know you don't try to be too predictive of when the court might rule. But what do you think happens next? Yeah, so look, I think what happens next is we have to take a step back and think of the broader context. There were two big developments in the Trump democracy world this week. One, which we've been talking a lot about, which is the argument in the 14th Amendment case. The other is the immunity decision that um, was decided by the D.C. Circuit, which Donald Trump's lawyers have until next Monday to seek U.S. Supreme Court review. So we may very well be back in the U.S. Supreme Court on the immunity claim. And I don't think anyone should take from the argument that we've been talking about that the Supreme Court will be at all sympathetic to, the, to Donald Trump on the immunity claim. So where do we go from here? I wish we could say that Donald Trump was in the rearview mirror. I wish I could say that, you know, he uh, his pernicious effect on democracy and on the Republican Party was behind us. But unfortunately, it's in front of us. You know, we're going to see more voter suppression uh, uh, efforts by Republicans because that's what Donald Trump wants. You know, we we also we didn't even have time to talk about this week. Donald Trump wants to replace Rona McDaniel because, believe it or not, he thinks Rona McDaniel has been too easy on voting rights. He wants a more stringent election denier uh, running the RNC. So I think we're going to see more and more of the need of the courts to step in. This may not be the case. This may, the kicking Donald Trump off the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, as right as I think it is as a matter of constitutional law, might just be a bridge too far. But people shouldn't give up on the courts because, you know, the Republicans are continuing to push their voter suppression agenda, notwithstanding what they say in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but the courts have been a powerful check on Donald Trump. And let's hope that they continue to be that check in the future. 
Thanks for listening to this special episode of Defending Democracy. You can find all of the cases and articles we mentioned today linked in the description of this episode. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review. To find out more and stay up to date on the latest voting rights and election news, visit democracydocket.com and please subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. We'll see you next time. Today's episode was produced by Ali Rothenberg, Gabri Corporal, and Paige Moskowitz. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket, LLC.